Okay, the only announcements that I'm aware of, first of all, and it disappeared. Art Barb, would you grab me a brochure? Oh, here it is. Somebody cleaned up here, moved stuff around. First announcement is the pre-trib conference, which is December 3rd through 5th, and that is held in Dallas at a hotel, the Sheraton Grand Hotel, which is near the DFW Airport in Irving. And it begins, the first session is about 8 o'clock on Monday morning, and the concluding session will end around 11 or 11.30, I believe, on Wednesday. There's a banquet on Monday night, and the speaker this year is a pastor named Chris Edmonds, who I met several years ago speaking at an APAC conference here about his father, who's the first American military who was recognized as a righteous among the nations by uh, Israel's Holocaust Memorial Yad Vashem. And <clears throat> so he'll be talking about his father and the events uh, surrounding that at the banquet. Also, there's a number of other speakers. The theme this year is on the Holocaust. And somebody asked, well, what does that have to do with prophecy? And it has to do with the fact that we believe that that God uses different things, sometimes tragic things in history to accomplish his purposes, and that in the, the trajectory of the Jewish people, uh, in especially in Europe, but it's very much true now in the United States, has been towards assimilation. This has happened several times in their history, and God used uh, some different events in order to uh, prevent that, to stop it, and to keep them as a people set apart to him. And so uh, one of the many reasons that God uh, may have allowed the Holocaust is because it uh, moved uh, and opened the eyes of Jewish people to the need to have a national homeland to move to Israel and to establish the Jewish state, which was established on May the 14th, 1948, three years after the conclusion of World War II and the recognition that there needed to be a, a safe nation that the Jewish people could go to without fear of anti-Semitism. And even though many have been in the United States and thought that the United States was a safe haven, it's not a safe, the safe haven a Jewish state would be. And so uh, anyway, that we believe is how God is beginning to return the Jewish people to their national homeland, setting the stage even further uh, for our Lord's return. So that's, uh, that's part of that. So there's a, an array of speakers, and you'll find that quite interesting. Also, we're going to have a family night and a movie and uh, eat together on Saturday, September the 1st. That will be from 5 o'clock to 8 o'clock. We'll show a film and just have a good time enjoying uh, one another's company and getting to know folks in the church. So we encourage everyone uh, to come to that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer uh, to give you the opportunity to make sure you are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, enjoying your relationship with God. It is the Holy Spirit who is the one who teaches us and matures us and produces fruit in our lives. And so when we walk with him, these spiritual growth aspects are produced in our life. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we come together, we are reminded that you are a holy God, totally distinct, set apart. You are the creator, totally distinct from your creation. You created all things, visible and invisible. You created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And as the creator of all things, you rule over all things. And you bring to pass that which you desire to bring to pass. And you have created each one of us to serve you, to glorify you. And to do that, we must first have the sin problem uh, solved personally. We must be born again. We do that by trusting in Christ as our Savior. And second, we must grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we grow... We are confronted with many different challenges and tests and adversities in life, knowing that these are designed to train us, to prepare us, to mature us, to teach us to trust in you. And Father, we pray that as we press forward in our lives, that we would constantly be reminded that we are not here to serve ourselves, but to serve you. And tonight as we study, we pray that you can help us to understand this portion of Scripture and see how it helps us to be encouraged that you are in control even in our darkest times. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we begin, I wanted to uh, let you know that, of course, we're all so sensitive right now to news about Russia and Russian collusion and all of those stories. And then we're also get a lot of news stories about China and fighting with China and things like that. And I thought it, <clears throat> you might be interested to know that even the Russians are concerned about the Chinese. And recently it was reported that in a lecture at the Russian Military Academy on potential geopolitical problems and solutions, uh, at the end of the lecture, they opened the fl floor to questions. And the first uh, officer stood up and asked the question if they thought that it, there would be a third world war. And the lecturer uh, said yes, there would be, and that Russia would be involved in that. And then a second officer said, well, who do you think our enemy will be? And the answer was China. We're very concerned about China, and we think they are seeking world domination, and they are. And so we're concerned about them. And then a third officer said, well, 
We're a nation of only 150 million, and the Chinese have one and a half billion. How can we possibly win such a war, outnumbered as we are? And the general said, well, you need to keep in mind that in modern warfare, it's not how many you have, it's the quality of your soldiers. For example, in the Middle East, over the past 70 years, there have been a number of wars where only 5 million Jews were able to defeat 150 million Arabs. And each time Israel emerged victorious. After a moment of reflection, an officer in the back of the room stood up and said, do you think we have enough Jews? <laughs> All right, open your Bibles to 1 Peter 4. Uh, 17 to 19, and we're going to continue our study dealing with how to face adversity, understanding what God is doing, and specific adversity here when we are suffering as Christians, suffering uh, for the name of Christ, not just general suffering, not even general undeserved suffering, but we're really looking at a narrow Topic, and that is suffering for the fact that we are Christians standing for Christ, standing for the truth of the Scripture. And I think this is a pertinent truth for all of us because in the last two or three hundred, actually the last 300 plus years in this nation, being concerned about persecution for our Christian faith has not been an issue. But that is changing. More and more people in this country hate and despise Christianity and everything that Christians stand for, and they're becoming much more vocal, much more visible. The media is giving them a platform to uh, spew their vile hatred towards Christians, and they get out in various parades and exhibit all of their, uh, their perversion. And this is not new in history, and certainly there was opposition at the, in the New Testament to those who stood with Christ, and that is the background for understanding this epistle of Peter to these Jewish background believers living in north-central uh, Turkey. Now, what I want to do here is we look at this passage and talk about what kind of judgment specifically we're going to get into verse 17 which begins, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. I want to start off with just reviewing the context. This is a difficult passage. Some passages are easy, some passages are hard. Some passages, it seems on the surface, especially with our familiar English translations, that they mean one thing. But then once you begin to scratch beneath the surface, take a look at the original Greek text, take some time reflecting on how does this really relate to the surrounding context of First uh, Peter, you begin to wonder what it really does mean. And you begin to scratch your head a little bit. And this is a passage that I have often heard quoted. The first time I consciously remember somebody quoting this, I was at a somewhat charismatic healing service at a vineyard church in 
California, and I was out there to investigate uh, the vineyard movement and Wimber movement for uh, some work I was doing at, uh, in my doctoral program at Dallas Seminary. And there was this prophet that was sort of being, uh, getting his second wind, as it were, from the, um, from the early healing revivals. This guy had quite, a, quite an interesting story, but that's another story. His name was Paul Kane, and he came out, and this became really a common theme in charismatic circles in the late 80s and early 90s. Of course, you're reminded that there were one or two little scandals that popped up within the charismatic movement at that time. You may remember uh, Jimmy Swaggart's Fall from Grace, and you remember the Praise the Lord uh, scandal that took out uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and a few other things that were going on back in back in the 80s. And so one of the themes that came up with was God is going to bring judgment down and he's going to start with the house of God. And so all of you people who are involved in secret sins and doing this and doing that, well, God is going to judge you and expose all of your sin. And it was this tool that they used to intimidate and scare and uh, threaten people, get them to give more money to come out to church, all these different kinds of gimmicks that you find in a lot of different churches. And this was a verse that they quoted. It's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And they applied that to right now. God's going to start this judgment and you can already see it happening and it's just going to happen and you better watch out because God's going to expose your sins. And that was the first time I really paid attention to this verse, and I wasn't studying First Peter at the time, and I kind of scratched my head. I wonder what exactly that means, but I'm pretty sure that I could bet everything I own and win the bet that this doesn't have anything to do with what they're talking about. And I would have won that bet. But it's interesting how many people use that. I've talked with Jim Myers about this verse off and on for a couple of years as we both sought to understand what it means. And he's ministering in a context where he's often out in the uh, areas in Ukraine and dealing with what is taught in Ukrainian Baptist churches, which if you didn't know, don't have anything whatsoever to do with American Baptist churches. They're very Arminian. They don't believe in eternal security at all. Some are changing a little bit. One of the scary things, from theologically speaking, is that a lot of these independent Baptist or Russian Baptist churches are being influenced by John MacArthur's Lordship Salvation, and that's uh, a bit distressing, and that moves them from one side of the spectrum to the other side of the spectrum. And then um, in, when Jim goes down to Zambia, this is the same kind of thing. And in both environments, this verse is taken out of context and used for the same thing to uh, cajole and intimidate and threaten people that, that God's going to be judging this church and exposing your sins so that we can have purity in the church. And so what is it actually actually mean when it starts off the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God and if it begins with us first what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God so we have to start off and as I've been studying this 
especially in context, and you know I've commented many times as we went through Matthew, went through Romans, we went through 1 Corinthians, so many different books, that when you look at things contextually, a lot of times these verses that appear to be saying one thing, once you understand the context, they can't be saying that because it, that would just be coming out of thin air. They're really talking about something a little bit different, and the same is true for this. And so I, I wanted to begin with some contextual review here to get our heads all back in this passage and understand what the flow of thought is uh, for Peter. First thing is that he's warning them about a time of increased persecution. Now, some commentators will plug this into the persecution under, under Nero, but that violates the... Um, what we learned from 1 Peter 1, 1, that he's addressing those in the diaspora, which means they're Jewish background Christians. They're mess, what today we'd call Messianic Jews. But this is still probably pretty early in our late 40s, maybe early 50s, I think, in the, in the uh, first century. And so the church was heavily Jewish at that time. Paul is out on probably by this time, he's on his second missionary journey, but Paul always went to the synagogue first, and sometimes he had a greater hearing than at other times, and sometimes he would just be thrown out on his ear, but there were a lot of Jews that responded. In fact, I read a demographic study that was put together by a sociology professor at Baylor, I think he's emeritus by now, But based on detailed information and extrapolating out how many were saved, like in Acts 1, Acts 2, uh, I mean, excuse me, in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and other passages, that there was a huge, huge number of Jewish, ethnic Jewish believers in the first century, and they had children, and they weren't reared in the synagogue as rabbinical Jews, They were reared as Christians, and they had children, and they had children. And so the uh, estimate, conservatively speaking, at least 50% of believers at the end of the second century, so we're talking about the beginning of the 200s in the Roman Empire, were ethnic Jews. Now, that may surprise you. That surprised me. That's that's a large number, but when I read through the data, it, it certainly made sense. Uh, based on on the demographics in Paul's Paul's ministry, so this is not going to be just some small group of diaspora uh, diaspora Jews, and they're under re- as we've studied, they're under rejection from the synagogue, they're under rejection from family members, they would be also under rejection from uh, Gentiles in the in the culture, and they had, as is typical of. Of, of Jews at different stages in history, they were assimilating. That was normative uh, for those outside of Israel. Even many who lived in Israel were assimilating, unless you were aligned with uh, the conservative religious parties like the Pharisees and the Essenes or the political aristocracy of the Sadducees. There was that, that trend towards assimilation. And this is what we see in the early part of chapter 4. So 
these believers are being warned about the fact that they will be reproached for the name of Christ in 4.14, and they will be suffering as a Christian. The only time a writer of Scripture uses the term Christian positively for, for believers. And in 1 Peter 4.14, he says, if you are reproached, and this has the idea of being reviled, ridiculed, made fun of, um, to anything all the way to persecution for the name of Christ, who Christ is and what he did for your belief in biblical principles as a Christian. And then 1 Peter 4.16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, so that's the area of suffering that he's talking about. doesn't mean that these principles don't apply to other areas of undeserved suffering. They certainly do, but that's the context that he's talking about. Second, we, we saw that he's saying that those who cause them to suffer are mentioned in 1 Peter 4.14. They're those who try you, according to 1 Peter 4.12. These are the ones who quote, vilify, blaspheme, or speak evil of Christians in 1 Peter 4, 4. And I put these verses up here because that's a little bit further away from 4.17, but it's close enough in the context to help us understand who these uh, these are who are be persecuting, reproaching, reviling uh, these believers. And in 1 Peter 4, 4, just to remind you, Peter says, so they are astonished. That is, these, these unbelievers that you ran with, and you were, you were going to drinking parties, and you were getting involved in all sorts of idolatrous um, uh, revelries and lewdness and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. All of those are listed in verse 3. And they are astonished when you don't rush with them into the same flood of wickedness and they vilify you. Now that word that's translated vilify in the, in the, um, in the Greek is blaspheme. And that means to, to give great reproach and, and that's going to be, blasphemeo is used again when we get down to, um, Verse 14, on their part, he is blasphemed. God is, Christ is blasphemed. So in verse 4, 4 and 4, 5, says that they, that is those who blaspheme you, will face a reckoning. And the word there has to do is they will, payday is coming. They will have to uh, pay back. They will have to make recompense before Jesus Christ who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. And I took that from the NET uh, translation because it's a, a, a little more accurate than what you have in the, in the New King James. And I'm just emphasizing the fact that, that when we get down to this, context, this passage we're looking at, there's this context that you have uh, the believers, the Christians who are obedient and who are going to be ridiculed are going to be vilified, they're going to be blasphemed, and that's coming from uh, those who have, as the passage says, they have not obeyed the gospel of God. So it's very clear it's coming from unbelievers. And they're the source of the suffering. Now the believers' response, as we studied, is described in verses 7 to 11 of this chapter. They're to be self-controlled and objective in their prayers. Actually, that's the main imperative going through here is that they are to uh, pray 
and be, New King James translates it, be serious and watchful, but the idea is to be self-controlled, mentally focused, and objective in their thinking, uh, in their prayers. And that's the command. They're to keep fervent in their love for one another. In verse 8, they are to show hospitality for one another, and that basically means to take care of one another. Sometimes it may be opening up your home. Sometimes it may be providing them with food or clothing, sometimes shelter, uh, Showing hospitality can take a number of different uh, approaches without complaining, without uh, saying, well, I really don't have enough food. I don't want to share with them. So you're not going to complain and moan about helping these people because they're ones who are probably being uh, vilified and victimized because of their stand for Christ. We're to serve one another as good stewards of grace. We're to be kind and gracious to one another. Uh, we're to speak and serve, so it's to glorify Christ, even in times of testing. That's in 4.11. All of these things are our response. That's how we're to live in the midst of this kind of opposition. Fourth, the conclusion of his argument is that we're not to be surprised the fact that we face opposition, rejection, and ridicule. We are to rejoice instead. That is what we read in 4.12. And then the fifth thing we saw is, but when you are ridiculed and the word, and, and that relates to being blasphemed, it's just a synonym for that blas, blasphemy. Um, hmm, spell check didn't work on that, did it? It's connected, 4, 4, and 5 are connected to 4.14 in the Textus Receptus, so that, that's what you'll read in King James and New King James, and in the majority text. Uh, that is in, in, in what you're probably looking at. But if you have an NASB, an NIV, an ESV, an RSV, any of those based on the idea that older is better, then you're not going to see um, the last part of verse 14 uh, in your text. So that's, that's going to make a difference. You won't see the phrase, on their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. So when I mentioned that earlier, some of you, if you're using an NASB 95 or an NIV, you'd be looking going, what's he talking about? I don't see blasphemy mentioned in my verse. I think looking at the external evidence of the manuscripts, I think the majority text is correct, that that phrase should be included as part of the original. And it's important contextually in tying things together. So when we're ridiculed, we're to respond a certain way. Six, so the context, this is the whole point I'm making. The context is about believers glorifying God in the midst of opposition, ridicule, all of these things. They're not slinking away in silence. They're not avoiding uh, the spotlight. It doesn't mean they're looking for a fight. It doesn't mean they're belligerent. It doesn't mean they're... Um, uh, trying to engage people in an argument, but they're not running from it either. And so as believers are facing this kind of opposition, they need to think also in terms of a future accountability for those who are ridiculing them, that there is a payday coming. And it's not necessarily in the end times. It's not necessarily at the end of times at the great white throne judgment. 
it can be in time right here and now. And God has certainly demonstrated that over the years, that he stands uh, in defense of his people, of believers. He did it with the Jews in the Old Testament. He does it in the New Testament, and he protects them and provides for them. So I've translated 1 Peter 4.14 this way. If you're belittled, ridiculed, marginalized for the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. A line taken from Isaiah related to the Messiah. So it's emphasizing that it is the Holy Spirit who strengthens us in the midst of these difficulties. And then he says, on their part, that is, Literally, it reads, on the one hand, on their part, that is, on the part of these who are ridiculing you, God is blasphemed. He's, he is the one who is, they may be ridiculing you, but ultimately they're blaspheming God. But on the other hand, on your part, God is glorified. We glorify God. We show how important he is by the way in which we respond to that persecution and that opposition. And then Peter says, and I paraphrase this, this is uh, verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't hide. Don't let them get the upper hand. Don't lower yourself to their level, but then don't hide in shame. That's what they want to do is they want to uh, ridicule. They want to in, um, shame us. They want us to leave the marketplace. That's why we have to study as believers. This is why we have to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us, First Peter 3.15. We have to understand what these arguments are and what's going to happen and how to counter them. We, we live in an era today where there are a lot of Christian organizations out there who are standing in the gap for us, and we need to be on some of their uh, email lists so that we can learn about the cases that they're fighting in courts to defend uh, believers who are uh, maybe having their businesses closed down or they're not being allowed to. There have been cases of uh, Air Force Academy cadets who have been uh, disciplined for writing Bible verses on dry erase boards in their dormitory rooms, and there have been cases of chaplains who have been uh, fired from the military and penalized because they would not perform services for same-sex marriages, when at the same time they're doing everything they can to find another chaplain that would provide the service. But that's not the issue. The issue is to make the Christian um, approve what the sinners are doing. So then we have this next phrase that comes out of verse 16, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Now I paused it there because what I'm showing in this slide is that you have a certain type of phrase at our clause actually at the beginning of verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Now, the way it's usually broken down in your English version is verse 17 is set apart as an independent sentence from verse 16. But studies have shown, without making everybody's eyes glaze over and going through all of the, all of the data, studies have shown that when you have a 
a dependent clause, and that's a clause that is not your main clause, a dependent clause that begins with this Greek word hadi, which is translated for or because, that it, uh, that the predominant times you have this kind of a sentence structure, it's the conclusion of a sentence not the beginning of a sentence. And there's several critical passages where that really does make a difference in understanding the, uh, the meaning of the passage. Uh, here it is not that doctrinally determinative, but it does fit that syntactical pattern. Let him glorify God in this manner. Why? Because the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, period. Okay. That's so, so it's just broken. Y'all know that God did not inspire these verse markings, don't you? God did not inspire the chapter divisions. The chapter divisions came out in the uh, late Middle Ages, and in the mid 1500s, Robert Stevens was riding on uh, horseback from Paris to Lyon, France, and he had his Greek text out, and while he's wobbling along as the horse is plop, plop, plopping down the road, he's marking the verse divisions. And I, I am convinced that that horse stepped in a couple of holes a few places and he missed with his pen and got the wrong verse division. And this is one of those places the verse should be divided after the word God. And this breaks up the, the, the thrust of the thinking. So it's uh, let him glorify God because the time has come for judgment to begin. So now we need to start looking at the details of this verse. And as I said in the introduction, this is, I have read dozens of commentaries on this, and you can divide people up into various categories, but those are the positions. There's like two broad positions. One is this has to do with some end-time judgment, and second, this has to do with some judgment in time. But once you get that broken down, then each of those have six or seven positions, and once you get below that, each one of those have various permutations. No two people that I read seem to be arguing for the uh, same identical interpretation. Two or three were close to what I'm going to teach, but none of them seem to really argue contextually and I've gone through some things and about four o'clock this morning when I couldn't sleep or probably 3 30 I was up with my laptop just basically just shifting through one commentary after another uh, skimming through their basic arguments and ran across one commentary by R.C.H. Linsky that said some things and answered some questions that had I had not been able to find anyone addressing because there's some really odd Greek things said in this passage, odd structures. So we have to get into this and we have to ask certain questions. First of all, what's the significance of that opening word for? How does that relate? If it's should be translated as for or for this reason or because. To what does that refer? Does it refer to verse 16? Does it refer to 15 and 16? Or does it, or, or is it picking up the thought of verse 14? It can be doing a lot, and how you understand that affects some things. Second, you have the word kairos here for the 
for the time has come for judgment. What does that mean? Does that mean the date has come and it's a precise on this day, whatever that day and year was, that, or is this talking about an epoch, like a dispensation? Is this talking about a period of time? Then third, what is the meaning of this word judgment? And I was working through this last time and was coming to where I was coming to was the judgment that we see here is not a negative judgment anywhere in this passage. Christians are not being judged negatively for sin anywhere in this whole chapter or in this whole conclusion. It's all talking about what sometimes is referred to positively, God's positive evaluation. But I did some more study... This guy I read this morning brought out some interesting facets of this word, went back, did some more homework, and am convinced that I have a better handle on it now. Uh, the choice is, is this talking about judgment or is this talking about verdict? See, one of the nuances of the word judgment is a judge in the courthouse pronounces a judgment. And by that, it means he's pronouncing the verdict. So it's a nuance of judgment that is present even in English and certainly was present a lot in, in Greek, according to Bauer, Danker, Arn, and Gingrich. Uh, and I think verdict is the best way to understand this. A verdict or sentence has been arrived at and is now going to be carried out. Um, fourth, what kind of infinitive is this word arc? or cast thy, which means the, to begin. When it says, for the time has come for judgment to begin. What's weird about that is it has an article in front of it, which is a bizarre thing. It gets into some real technical things, but as an exegete, you have to figure out what that is. And it's a, an extremely rare construction. And then fifth, what do the preposition apa mean? Okay, let me help you understand why that's important. For the time has come for judgment to begin, and the King James Version says to begin at the house of God. The at there is a tr translation of this preposition, apa. Apa has something to do with from, or from the source of, or from the beginning of, or from the time of. It doesn't mean at. At isn't listed anywhere in any of the lexicons as a meaning for the word apo. And then it says, it's going to begin, apa, or from the house of God. And if it begins, and see, then the King James translates that next phrase, with us. Same phrase. It's still an apa. So now they're translating it with the English word with. Doesn't mean with either. You can look in all the lexicons. Nowhere does it mean with. Sometimes when a phrase comes over into English, translators will do something like that simply because it might make a little more sense in English if you use one of those other prepositions. But you, you can only do that once you've exhausted trying to understand on the primary meaning of, of, of the word. So we've got to look at that. And then we'll get into the next verse, verse 18, which is a quote from Proverbs 11.31. And I think that's real important. If you can't figure out what verse 18 is talking about, that is explaining the statement in verse 17. 
So that's got to be figured out. And then verse 19 also has to be figured out. And then it all comes together. So let's just um, look at verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin from the house of God. And that word for is a word that is explanatory here. It is explaining something. It is explaining what has been said before, and I think it is explaining verses 16, uh, especially verses 15 and 16. It's the conclusion to what is said at the end of verse 16. But let him glorify God in this manner, for the time has come. It's explaining why you should glorify God in the matter of persecution or being reviled, because the time has come for this judgment to begin from the house of God. So, I have to take some time to talk about that, but we have to first understand this word time. This word time, kairos, has the idea of a time, a period of time, or an epoch or age. So, what he's talking about here is that um, that for the period of time, we could translate it that way. It gives us a little clear, more clarity there. For the period of time has has come. For the period of time uh, has come. And then we have the phrase, the judgment from the house of God. So what does this judgment mean? And I'm going to argue that it means verdict. That God has reached a verdict. God, God knows what's going on. And we go back to passages such as uh, 4 5 in this chapter. Uh, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's, he's ready to announce that verdict. And so there's a verdict that is being put into place. And this verdict is put into place at a time in this time frame. And this time frame, Peter is saying, is beginning. It's the period for the verdict to begin. So God's verdict on who? Not on Christians. This is a verdict on the unbelievers who are persecuting the Christians. Now, the next phrase is where it starts getting a little difficult because when it says to begin at the house of God, or in some cases it's in the house of God, in other cases it's with the house of God, and as I pointed out earlier, uh, none of the lexica give those options as a meaning for the word apa, that what this is expressing is that when these, blas these blasphemers begin to ridicule the believers at that starts the time period when God's verdict will be enacted. The word, we'll look at this in just a minute, for house of God is a term for believers. It's a term not just for a specific location, a specific church. It is for made up of the body of Christ. So what it's saying is 
from the time, that's a sense that you have in this, of this word apa that's documented in, in the, the lexica, is that from the house of God, once persecution begins on those who are trusting in Christ for their relationship to Christ, then God's verdict is going to come down on these blasphemers. So it is not talking about something that is happening to Christians within the house of God or at the house of God, because that takes it as, as, as local in some sense, but it begins from us first. The occasion that gives rise to the implementation of the verdict is this blasphemy, this reproach that comes from the unbeliever. Linsky writes, the period in which Peter writes is the one when God's verdict on such men is to start. This is the beginning of the this in the church age. The period in which Peter writes, so he's writing at the beginning of the church age, is the one when God's verdict on such men is to start, and its start is apa, from the house of God. That starts this time period. Uh, from the crimes these men are committing against God's house, his holy church, that is the universal church. Every verdict starts from the object involved in the crime. That's a legal statement. Every verdict starts from the object involved in the crime, the victim of the crime, we might say. So the victim of this crime are believers in the church, and so once the crime begins to occur, then God implements his verdict. And so then he alludes back to verses 4 and 5 and the blasphemers there. Now, the term house of God is not a common term in the New Testament for the universal church or the body of Christ, but it is one that is used several places. It's used previously by Peter in 1 Peter 2.5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. So it's a metaphor, the idea of construction, the idea of building something to a point of completion is a description of the house of God. Who lives in a house? The family lives in a house. We're members of the royal family of God. So it's a figure of speech related to describing uh, the household of God. And a household has certain rules, doesn't it? The Greek term that would describe that is the Greek term oikonomos. Oikos for house, namos for law. It's usually translated administration or in King James English, it was translated, are you ready? Dispensation. Okay, that's the household of God. That means it's the church. 1 Peter 3.15, Paul writes to Timothy and says, But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Now, he's not talking about a particular church. He's talking about among the body of Christ. Hebrews 3.6, the writer of Hebrews says, but Christ is a son over his own house. He's the head of the church. He is the uh, head of, the, of his body, the church. Over his own house, whose house we are, 
if we hold fast to confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. So house of God is a term related to the church. So what we've seen is the time or the period has come, it's beginning, uh, for judgment to begin, that is for the verdict to begin to be implemented from the house of God, from the occasion of persecution of Christians. And then he says, and if it begins, and it's not with us first, it's still Appa, and if it begins from us first, from us, from the time that we are experiencing this persecution, he then says, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And there is the contrast between uh, believers who have trusted in the gospel of God and those who have not trusted in the gospel of God. And so when we think about that and its expression, there are several passages that talk about, talk about the gospel of God. And one of those is in Acts 26, 19, when Paul is talking to King Agrippa and he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. The heavenly vision was when Jesus appeared to him on the uh, road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then gave Paul orders and Paul says, I'm not disobedient. The gospel is a command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So when you don't believe, you're being disobedient. There's other passages that talk about that. And it's (coughs) interesting the way Paul refers to himself before he was saved. He said, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. So that's terms that are used by Peter also to describe those who are persecuting the church in, in 1 Peter. So the only solution to avoid the temporal judgment that is being talked about here in verse 17 is of the uh, is to trust in Christ to obey the gospel. Now another thing I want to point out here is that what Peter is saying is that if this begins from us first, this is what's going to initiate it in this period of time. This goes on. This is an initial judgment. It's a temporal judgment that God will bring against those who are opposing the church. But then the implication here is of an long-term judgment, an eventual judgment that will occur, and that's indicated by that phrase, what will be the end? What is the end result for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So the primary focus here is on God is going to bring judgment on these in time, but the worst is going to be what he brings against them at the end time judgment. So the passage uh, includes both a near judgment reference as well as far judgment to those who have not uh, trusted in Christ. And that brings us to Another difficult passage, but I think one that becomes obvious to us 
in 1 Peter 4.18, which is a quotation from the Septuagint translation of uh, Proverbs 11.31. And the um, uh, translation in the, uh, or the statement here in 4.18, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Y'all understand what that means, right? We can just move on to the next verse. That's how most pastors handle things like this, sadly, and, and it takes a lot of time to work this out. On this slide, what I've done is I've put the New King James translation and the Hebrew, which is a translation here, and the translation uh, of the Septuagint down below. If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, or the Septuagint, if the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, then how much more the ungodly and the sinner, and how much more the wicked and the, and, and the sinner? And so um, you can see the difference between uh, this translation. I think this is, uh, I, I didn't label this, unfortunately, when I copied it in there. Uh, but you can see the difference. The righteous one is scarcely saved. That's, that's reflecting the Septuagint, neither one of these. This is, I think, the New King James and New American Standard. Um, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, what's the first question you have to ask looking at that passage? Well, the first two questions are, what does scarcely mean and what does saved mean? What does scarcely mean and what does saved mean? Are we talking about getting justified here? Or are we talking about uh, being physically delivered from persecution? Or are we talking about sanctification? Those are three interesting options, aren't they? And when you look at the words that's used here, the word that is translated scarcely is the word malice which has the idea of with difficulty or hardly or rarely or scarcely or even not easily. And I think the, and then, then the words sozo here can refer to being justified, being sanctified, as well as being uh, healed. It's used one previous time in 1 Peter 3.21, which is talking about physical deliverance from the flood. And the time of the flood, as it's used in 1 Peter 3.21, is an illustration of how uh, those who are being reviled and ridiculed at the time of the flood, that is Noah and his wife and three sons and their wife, they are a, used as a picture of the church being unjustly persecuted and attacked by those who are uh, on the earth at that time. And so I, I think that the word saved here is not talking about justification and getting into heaven. And it's not talking about uh, sanctification. It's just talking about their deliverance in this testing. And it should be translated not scarcely saved, but uh, saved with difficulty or saved uh, or not easily saved. God delivers them. But what is the hindrance here for the reason that it's not easily done? It's because that there are too few believers who are truly trusting in God. That's why it takes us to verse 19 
the command as the conclusion. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good because most are not doing this and that's why they're not experiencing God's deliverance. And sometimes God delivers us in the midst of testing so that we don't experience anything. He just removes it completely from us. Sometimes he delivers us by taking us out of this life. And sometimes he delivers us by giving us the strength as well as protection to survive the opposition. You can think of Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. God delivered them so that they survived through the midst of that opposition. And that wasn't a normative thing. Others died because of their stand for Christ. And others, God just removed the suffering. So the command, the final exhortation here is let those who suffer according to the will of God. What does that mean? Those who are suffering, you've got to go back. How does God in this passage tell us we are to handle this kind of ridicule and reproach and persecution? We are to be objective and self-controlled in our prayers. We are to love one another fervently. We're to be hospitable to one another. We are to minister to one another as stewards of God's grace, and we are to uh, minister with the ability that God supplies. That's how we do this according to the will of God. God. It's not like we sit there and go, okay, God, what do you want me to do here? It's already spelled out for us in verses 7 to 12. That's how God wants us to respond, to respond to opposition, ridicule, loving your enemies. We handle it in grace. And so let those who suffer according to the will of God, that is those who are applying the word in the midst of this ridicule and rebuke, uh, commit their souls to him by doing good, that is by applying the scripture and then it concludes with the phrase, as to a faithful creator. Now, why didn't it say, as to a faithful redeemer? Because as God as creator emphasizes God's sovereign control over human history, and God is the one who is in control over the ebb and flow of adversity and suffering in the church. That's not a function of his redemption plan. That is a function of God as the sovereign creator. And so this explains why Peter chooses to use the word creator here because it emphasizes ultimately God's the one who is in control. So that we in, when we encounter this kind of undeserved suffering, this kind of opposition because we are taking a stand as a Christian, we're to be reminded that Jesus warned us that we are, should expect that. That if they beat him and they crucified him, what should his followers expect? That we are identified with him, we're identified with the plan of God, and we are. he was hated because he represented the Father and will be hated for the same reason. And so... We must 
learn to relax and trust God even when he is taking through taking us through uh, persecution and hostility when our families ridicule us and laugh about us and joke about us uh, in bad ways because we take a stand for Christ when we have people who talk behind our back or people who call us names because we're Christians or just kind of make fun of us all of those things and can get much much worse than that lose jobs, you lose your income, not be able to uh, carry on your livelihood. That's what's going on in a couple of these cases where the bakers and uh, others who work in the wedding business and in other businesses have done what they tried to do what they can to help out those who are uh, homosexual so that they will get what they want but the reality is is they are being attacked they're being targeted specifically to force them to compromise their beliefs and their values and their conscience in order to do something supportive of homosexual marriage or something else that they know to be wrong these days are here they are may not be here in Houston, Texas, or in the heart of the Bible Belt in the South, but they are definitely in this country, and there are areas in some states where if you are a Christian and it's known, uh, you will be targeted. This is a very real thing in some areas, and so Peter gives us the guidance for this, and he will continue in terms of instructions in relation to the body of Christ and the oversight of the body of Christ when we get into the next part of the conclusion starting in chapter 5 next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. Be reminded of your grace, your goodness, your plan. Nothing surprises you. And when we face this kind of opposition, it really shouldn't surprise us. So often we put our personal comfort and our personal security above your plan and glorifying you And we forget that living this life is not about us. It's all about you. It's all, excuse me, it's all about your plan. It's all about showing how important and central you should be to every person on earth. That's the idea of glorifying you. Father, challenge us with the idea that we need to renovate our priorities, refocus our understanding of why we're living this life and what our ultimate goal should be. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.